This is Shaheen Chaudhary, and welcome to another exciting episode of How I Lead Change, a podcast about executives leading successful human-centric changes in their organizations. I'm hosting this podcast from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations in British Columbia, Canada. Today, I am joined by Helen Sheridan. Chief Human Resource Officer at StemCell. As the largest biotech company in Canada, StemCell provides high-quality cell culture media, cell separation technology, and educational resources for scientists worldwide working on stem cell, immunology, cancer, regenerative medicine, and cellular therapy research. Helen Sheridan is renowned for her expertise in creating human-centric, thriving organizational cultures that drive exceptional business results and growth. She is a visionary leader with a strong focus on values, community, and innovation. Helen has an undergraduate degree in political science and a master's degree in organizational systems. She is an active member of her community and serves on multiple boards, including Aqua Action and BC Technology Association. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome Helen to our podcast, joining us from Nanus Bay, British Columbia. Well, thanks for that introduction, Shaheen. It's very humbling, and uh, I'm looking forward to speaking to you as well today. Awesome. Well, let's get started. Um, Helen, Stem Cell Technologies recently won Canada's Most Admired Corporate Cultures of 2023 award. Congratulations to you and everybody at Stem Cell. It's quite an accomplishment. So tell us more about Stem Cell and what the award means to you and your team at Stem Cell. Uh, Stem Cell has been in business for 30 years now. Uh, We were started in 1993 uh, by our founder, Dr. Alan Eaves, um, and he uh, at the time was also uh, running the Terry Fox Lab here at the BC Cancer Agency. Um, And he needed a way to um, meet uh, the needs of his lab with grad students, and so he started selling um, cost-effective self-culture media um, sort of on the side through the side business. Um, a few years after that, he decided to retire from uh, from the TFL and, and leaned in full-time to uh, stem cell technologies. And today, we're doing over $600 million in revenue with 2,400 staff working in 18 different countries. Um, so it really is recognition of this uh, homegrown BC success story. Uh, founded by a scientist uh, who was trying to help scientists um, and uh, has grown into this uh, very well-known organization. If you if you are a stem cell researcher, you most likely have used stem cell technologies products. And, um, you know, the, the, the great organization that we've created that, that continues to support that vision of, you know, just continuing to grow a Canadian 
business um, to keep intellectual property in Canada and not export it and to constantly providing products to scientists out there who are trying to cure regenerative diseases and learn more about how our bodies work um, and uh, doing it in a way that is good for people and the planet. What a great mission and an amazing success story here. Um, tell us more about the award and, and how did you come across about that and like what the what the journey was like and uh, was this something that uh, you were expecting or was this a surprise for you and your team? Uh, we we um, have won a number of awards at, at Stem Cell for various things and um, we we were uh, hopeful that we were going to be acknowledged. Uh, with this award, um, so we did. We we did know there was a possibility, and we worked with Waterstone, who are the sponsor company for that award, um, to uh, put together our best foot forward. Uh, it was the first year we'd applied for the award, and so we were surprised to be acknowledged in the first year of application. Um, but. Um, yeah, I think it's just a testament to to our culture and 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 probably a good partnership with Waterstone as well, where they're you know they're really interested in telling stories about organizations that are doing things differently, and Stem Cell definitely is doing things differently. Um, uh, so, um, but it it's it's a major win for us. It's the first time we've been recognized from an employee experience perspective. Um, we did win best managed uh, several years ago. Now I wanna say we've had that designation for at least five or six years um, and continue to, to receive it. Um, but uh, this is the, the first time that our employees in total have been recognized for the great place that they make it um, to, 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 to be and to work. So uh, it's just a fantastic recognition for, for all of our team members. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, going from, uh, you know, well, best managed to uh, also getting recognized for experience, employee experience. Uh, you know, change management uh, is all uh, focuses a lot on, uh, you know, leading human centric changes. And so this is really talks to that. Uh, so sh share with us a successful change journey that you've led in your career. Um, well, the one that sort of jumps to mind, I, I'm sure you've had lots of conversations about return to the office and COVID and things like that. So during all of that occurring, um, we were launching a new job architecture across our enterprise, as well as uh, following the implementation of the architecture, um, a, a new way of managing our pay programs. So that that in total was about a three-year project with a with a six-month pause in the, in the middle while we all responded to COVID. And how did that go? What was that like uh, with the six-month response? And um, what was the like? How did you work with your stakeholders, especially people that were impacted, on on helping them adopt the change and the impacts of that? Yeah, I I think that um. You know, a lot of change efforts are approached because or they come to the organization as mandates from executives who sit at boardroom tables who may or may not have um, 
lived experience of what the downstream impact of those changes look like. And so I learned that lesson a long time ago, actually, when I was working in healthcare. And um, and so the approach that I take to change now is very much to, you know, what my team members will hear us talk as follow the yes. So, uh, or I, I talk about following the yes. So when I when I joined Stem Cell, we had a job structure, job architecture in place that was um, not serving the needs of the organization. And, and yet we had not yet earned the mandate uh, through the HR team to make such a major change to something that is quite foundational about the way that jobs are designed. And so, you know, noticed that that needed to be changed and then went on to spend about five years doing all sorts of other foundational work before really touching into this framework that was well adopted and 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 well understood in the organization but but not particularly well designed for scale so along the journey there was an opportunity to drop breadcrumbs and you know ask questions about whether this job architecture was actually the existing job structure is what they called it, was actually serving the needs of the vision of the organization, which is to have the right people in the right place at the right time with the right skills. And so it, it became apparent to the to the system itself that this architecture was no longer working. And that, you know, unfortunately, you know, waiting five years was, you know, also made the complexity of the project significantly higher because had we made that change eight years ago, um, it, we would have affected 700 employees in nine different countries. Choosing to wait five years later meant that um, we were affecting the change for, as I said, 2,400 employees in 18 different countries. So the complexity of the change project became significant as a result of that delay. However, um, what I will say is that then uh, the reason for the change came from the bottom up, right? So our employees noted to us that they found it difficult to navigate their careers. They didn't understand which jobs were up at, at like levels. Uh, we had just completed our first annual employee engagement survey, and we could see there that there was a, a strong desire um, to have more transparency in how our pay programs worked. Um, and so we sort of had left uh, from the ideas coming from the organization itself, even though if I'd have gone to a frontline staff member and said, you know, what do you think about re-architecting your job structure? They wouldn't have known what I was talking about, right? The elements of the, um, the desire for the change were there and we'd seeded the organization with that. So then we were able to um, highlight those problems that the organization was telling us were problems and anchor them into the creation of the desire to change. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that's where um, executive change leadership can be really transformational is when you're deeply listening to the needs of your organization, you know what your agenda is, you know, I mean, it stem cell hired me to, 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 because of the skills and experience that I have um, and and all the executives that are listening to this podcast are in in the same boat you you know you're you're being hired for your ideas and your 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 uh, transformation agenda and also it's true that most likely uh, many people who are working in your system 
also understand that there's a need for change. Um, and so it's just a matter of like really listening deeply for those signals and 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 changes that can you can harness to then uh, put left underneath the change that you're trying to drive. And I think we did that really well with our job architecture program. Um, we also made a decision not to entirely separate our job architecture from compensation discussions. Um, and that was because we felt that it was really important that um, employees understood what job they were in um, and what the boundaries of those jobs were before we entertained the conversation about pay. Um, it, anyone who's in HR, you know, might say, well, duh, that's obvious. Um, but it, 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 it wasn't obvious to everyone in the organization. Um, and why I say duh, that's obvious is because if we're having a conversation with you about what your job description is and how it levels up to other jobs across the organization, it's very difficult to have that conversation accurately if we also involve pay because our human tendency will be to try and fit the job into the pay band that I want to be paid in right so we said we're, we're, we're taking pay completely off the table and all we want to understand is how the jigsaw puzzles of these jobs uh, level up in the organization and then once we've done that then we'll look at pay so that's what we did. So we we implemented the job architecture in May of 2022. And since that time and up until October of 2023, we've then leveled up the, the pay component to that. So um, again, I think that that was really uh, a good strategy in retrospect because people were really comfortable with their jobs being leveled appropriately to other peers before we then started to level up their pay. Um, and so when we then moved up into the leveling up part about the pay, the, then we got the opportunity to discuss with people and educate people um, about what our pay ranges are, um, why we place people in certain places in the pay range, um, uh, you know, what specific activities they need to take to move their pay to a higher uh, zone in the pay range, et cetera. And we weren't actually debating any longer about whether they were in the right job level or not. Um, and this all sort of like, you know, the, 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 the accidental benefit of all of this was that um, BC launched its pay transparency legislation in November of this year. And so by the time we got there and, you know, we didn't necessarily see that coming when we started this work three years ago, all of our employees understood what their job was, what their pay ranges were, where they personally sat in the pay range, and they were appropriately paid at that spot well before the BC pay transparency legislation went live. And so when it did, we heard zero noise from our employees and you know that's different from what we've heard from our our colleagues elsewhere in the industry um, and that's because we were deeply listening we were true and transparent all the way through we engaged our employees in conversations first about their jobs and then about their pay levels we reflected their concerns back in the answers that we gave them 
Um, and uh, and so, you know, now I think people are very, very comfortable with, with where they landed. And, and, and the end result is we've gone from what was previously a, a black box to something that people clearly understand and, and, and have had a lot of training, education, conversation um, to, to land. So um, it took a long time, you know, and a lot of effort and many, many, many conversations. But I think in, in retrospect, it was very worth it. That's great. So, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned that building a clear case for change and uh, deep listening uh, are the two real key part in uh, leading a successful change, a transformational change uh, that you mentioned. Let's talk yeah, about. Yeah, I would say uh, I would I would say deep listening and also tying that results of that deep listening to the agenda that you're trying to change, right? So it's sort of it's the connecting the dots of what the people in the right. system are telling you with the change that you're trying to drive. And also, you mentioned like uh, simplifying or not simplifying, but actually uh, dividing uh, the uh, the issues you're seeing uh, and the solutions you're coming up with into uh, two different areas and, and addressing one first and then going to the next one. Right. So talking about the structures uh, around your, uh, you know, your um, organizational structures first and then uh, moving on to the compensation part uh, rather than doing both at the same time. Yeah, and I and that was not without a lot of debate, right? I mean, we had we had many conversations with people who really wanted to tie it to the pay, and you know, and managers and and department heads who would say, "Well, I can't level a job if I don't know what the end result is going to pay." Um, and and I would say that you know, being firm in your boundaries and you know, having a good project charter and 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 being able to turn back to that and say, "Well, that conversation is clearly out of scope. Um, we're not going to be talking about that." Is is just you, you have to be fearless when you're leading a change like that and having a good charter with what's in scope and out of scope helps helps with that uh, from the get-go yeah. for sure. And what's the result has been? I know you mentioned it's been mostly positive uh, compared to your peers, especially with the alignment with the BC legislation. Uh, what has been the overall result of uh, this, this change? Um, well, I mean, from a business perspective, uh, you know, we now have a pay program that is budget, you know, capable, I would say, right? You know, it's it's predictable. We right. um, uh, we we can manage our costs significantly more effectively with respect to headcount than we were able to in the past. And that's a big deal for an organization that's growing 20% year over year as stem cell is. Um, so, you know, we, we, we are much better partners to finance. And as a result of that, our employees can depend on secure and stable employment as we grow. Um, so I think that's the most important outcome. Um, we all we all want to make sure that we keep working. I, I from an employee engagement perspective, our employee engagement is very very high. Our 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 compensation scores on engagement continue to go up. Um, our turnover has dropped from twelve percent to under eight. Um, uh, I think some of that has to do with our 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 pay transparency it's it's hard to know how much of that has to do with it but i but i think the fact that it's dropped so significantly you know since this program has been launched is an indicator that that's um a big a big part of it 
And uh, another change you've uh, mentioned is the significant growth that your organization is going through year over year. Yeah, yeah. We, um, I mean, we we've been growing twenty percent year over year uh, for the last thirty years, so it's not um, new to us. Um, of course, it just gets very difficult to change um, as you get as big as we are. So I think we'll see ourselves, we, we know we'll slow our headcount growth um, quite significantly um, over the next few years. I think we'll probably do more like about 10% headcount growth. Um, and that's just because it, it becomes increasingly difficult to integrate um, hundreds of people into your organization versus tens or twenties, right? Great. That's uh, understandable. Well, you've got you've built a strong foundation for that future growth as well now. Um, so tell mm -hmm. us about what's driving change in your industry in the biotechnology area. Yeah, well, we saw a huge uh, a couple big shifts um, in our industry. Um, one, a, a, a couple years before COVID, where uh, CAR-T therapy was the first stem cell therapy that was approved by the FDA for broad use and uh, curing cancer. Um, so that's individualized med medicine using your own cells uh, that are programmed to eat cancer, basically. Um, and that uh, really fueled the second change, which was uh, a whole lot of money being flow, fl uh, flowed into biotech and in particular into stem cell research from the venture capital community. And then COVID just, you know, made that happen on steroids um, as investors saw how much money could be made during COVID uh, biotech companies uh, across the world just started to crop up from uh, usually universities um, who are doing research in a certain area and then spinning off that research into a private entity. Um, and so that's now shifted. So, uh, you know, what I think a lot of those investors didn't understand, they were pretty unsophisticated biotech investors, is that most biotech investments take 10 to 15 years to come to fruition. Um, and they're very risky, uh, involving multiple stages of clinical trials at any given point, um, you know, where the, where the business can get shut down. And so in the last half of uh, last year and also well into this year, we've seen a lot of biotechs uh, who had become our customers go uh, bankrupt. And, um, you know, some pretty, pretty exciting technologies as well. So um, our business really was booming around those biotech um, investments. And, and luckily, stem cell has a long history in academia. Um, and it's part of our business strategy to, to have academics using our products. Um, so we've been somewhat buffered from that, the impact of a bit of a dot bomb, but in the I, I don't I don't know what the biotech version of dot bomb is, but uh, we're definitely <laughs> we're definitely seeing that. Um, okay. uh, and uh, but still, it's you know it's it's definitely challenging because um, you know we we did pick up a number of customers uh, toward the tail end of last year who were you know these exciting biotech uh, firms, and now they're losing their investment. Uh, that said, that's also an opportunity for acquisition because there is some really um, in, in, exciting technologies out there that are going for pennies on a, on the dollar. Okay, that's interesting to know the changes that are happening in biotechnology with the, a bit of a boom and a little bit of a bust uh, going on, but uh, and opportunities, lots of opportunities out there. 
Uh, in terms of uh, one piece of advice or that you would give other executives, your peers on leading change in their organizations, what would that be? Yeah, I, th- I think that, um, you know, change leadership starts much earlier than most executives think. Um, and in the profession of change management, you know, I'll, I'll often hear execs who've made a decision and then they say, now we need a change manager, right? And I, I, I think that change management begins at ideation. Um, you know, if if you know what your plans are, um, you are starting to think about how to bring people along with your change way before those plans even come to fruition. Um, and there, and as a result of that, if I approach change in that way, um, you know, my when when I finally get to the place where I'm pitching a change, it's got some elements of the deep listening that I've that I've done um, in it, and and therefore it comes ac- it comes across as uh, the organization's desire to change versus any particular one executive's um, idea. Um, and I and I I think that gets missed, right? And so that then the change leadership becomes around you know how to um, what's the word I'm looking for, how to amplify the change message in the organization rather than how to write the change comms, if that makes sense, right? Um, if you think about the, the the job of a change manager as the amplification of a message that already is in existence in the organization, then I think change becomes much easier to lead. That sounds uh, really good to me. I mean, uh, you're right that uh, if, if it's top of mind at the time of ideation for those leaders that are uh, starting to ideate and create, uh, you know, the change plans, then it's uh, it does make it a lot. Uh, uh, it's it's, it's uh, top of mind, so it uh, definitely removes some of the the challenges for sure um well thank you so much helen for your time uh today uh we've uh i'm pretty sure that you know your experience and uh, stories will be very uh helpful for other listeners and uh peers in in the you know leaders who are have a similar role in organizations such as yours thanks That's all for today's episode of How I Lead Change. I hope that you can take what you've learned from Helen and incorporate that into your own leadership style. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Now go out there and be successful at change.